One thing that's funny is that in the scientific community, people have been saying that this is not, somebody I quoted in my dissertation many years ago from a paper in 2010 that said the next coronavirus pandemic is not a question of if, it's a question of when. Medicine Remix. Remix. It's his choice, but I certainly will continue, as I've always had, to give my honest assessment of the scientific and data that is really the evidence that I base my judgments on. Welcome to Inside the Hospital, a Medicine Remix original series that focuses on healthcare workers on the front line of the current pandemic and gaining insights from their unique perspectives. Uh. Last week, we checked in with board-certified allergist and immunologist Dr. Akila Jefferson, who filled us in on creative therapeutic approaches that are being tried for those fighting COVID-19, the long process of developing a vaccine, and the public health implications of a pandemic like this one. On today's episode, we have another special interview for you, as we'll be hearing from Dr. Taylor Heald Sargent, who is currently finishing up her final year of Pediatric Infectious Disease Fellowship at Ann and Robert H. Lurie Children's Hospital of Chicago. She's also an expert virologist with interest in the coronaviruses, as she has a PhD on the cellular entry of SARS-CoV-1. For those that don't know what SARS-CoV-1 is, it's the virus that was implicated in the initial SARS epidemic of the early 2000s and is the coronavirus most closely related to SARS-CoV-2, the virus implicated in the current pandemic. Today's episode is also special in that a longtime close friend of mine and Medicine Remix supporter, Dr. Duano Thacker, will be conducting the interview with Dr. Heal Sargent. Duano is also at Lurie Children's Hospital finishing up his third year in pediatric residency and getting ready to start working as a hospitalist this summer. We're pumped to share this interview with you, and we hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as we did putting it together. Here's Duano. So I wanted to start things off by asking you, how have your last five to six weeks looked since COVID has really started to take over the headlines? Has your day-to-day changed at all or anything like that? Well, I think similar to pretty much everyone around the world, it's completely changed. I am currently mainly in the lab studying a different virus in transplant patients. Um, And most lab projects have been stopped because you can't do lab work remotely. So most scientists have been sent home from the labs, everything put on pause. But with that, and a bunch of us, you know, have some experience with coronavirus or have just other experience with viruses and are generally inquisitive. A lot of us have band together and tried to think about how as a scientific community we can help with this pandemic. And so even those of us that can't get into a lab have been talking about different research projects we can do and trying to figure out ways safely that we could conduct some research. So I've been working for the past few weeks with some other people at my institution trying to figure out if what clinically we can learn from patients because at least from our institution we're looking you know, mainly at pediatrics and some young adults but it seems pediatrics has thankfully been spared a lot of severe disease so our question has come up what's making kids so unique and so trying to collect data around that um, both clinical epidemiologic data but also clinical samples that we can then use when we can get back into the lab to study some of the immune responses or study some of the things in kids so i've been participating with other researchers trying to plan research and i know other research it's really interesting some labs that have been able to that haven't even been clinical labs but just have expertise in for example, testing and running the PCR assays, they've completely shifted over and have really gone all in and helping out with this and trying to figure out how they can 
scale up testing and converting their what was research into clinical labs and it's really interesting to see the scientific community shift their whole focus onto this pandemic and just seeing what they can do to help out. Yeah, I would agree with you. It's been super cool just kind of watching from the periphery to see how people who may not necessarily, their day-to-day responsibilities may not necessarily have been um, geared towards this coronavirus pandemic. They're coming together in so many different ways and finding out ways that they can help or shift or pivot their um, initial sort of approaches or their targets to help in any way they can with this coronavirus pandemic. It's been really cool to see people stepping up like that. Yeah, it's really nice in the in and across anyone that can contribute anything, you know, the people that can sew are making masks. And so it exactly. makes sense that the scientists are trying to do the science to learn about the virus. Exactly. Taylor, you were sort of mentioning that some of what your research currently has shifted to right now to help understand this pandemic a little bit better is why kids are being spared and what's um, what's been going on with that. Do you mind telling us if there's anything new or interesting you've learned? Yeah, I mean, not nothing yet. It, it's still early days. And a lot of what the literature is right now is case reports or clinical series of patients sure. and just what we can glean from them from more easily done labs and some of the more sophisticated tests are going to take a little bit more time. Um, it was noticed even with the first SARS that kids was kids were not as affected clinically, um, but that was taken under control so quickly that you know not a whole ton of research was able to be done. In the intervening years, though, researchers have tried to look at some differences in animal models and young and old, um, but it still is really difficult to pinpoint why kids aren't as affected. There's a lot of theories and hypotheses out there ranging from maybe some pre-existing differences in their immune response because everyone's exposed to coronaviruses every year. Um, Kids will get them and adults will get them and it's just often a common cold and we don't usually even identify exactly what coronavirus a patient might have. You just, you wouldn't even get tested for it. So is it something that kids are exposed to those other coronaviruses more? And so their immune system can react a little bit differently to this one, or is it something different about their immune system that it's a different level of maturity in the adults and the kids and the kids that for some reason their developmental maturity of their immune system is better at controlling the virus or it doesn't overreact to the virus. Some people think maybe it has to do with actually the receptors, so the protein that the virus uses to get into cells, to infect cells. Um, It's kind of like the doorknob that the virus has to latch onto to open up the inside, to get to the inside of the cell. Um, People have started to see some differences perhaps in the levels of that protein in kids versus adults. So that's another avenue that's currently being explored, but we don't have answers yet. Gotcha. But it sounds like there's a lot of different things worth looking into and worth exploring. I I really think so. Yeah, that's amazing. So you mentioned uh, that coronaviruses already do exist in our community and 
that they're going to continue existing long after this uh, COVID-19 pandemic is over. That's something that when I tell my friends or family that, you know, at the hospital, we see coronavirus viral infections frequently during the cold season in our pediatric populations. That's something that they're um, kind of shocked to hear about. And so I was wondering, could you maybe talk a little bit more about what those more common coronaviruses are that exist in our community and what sort of um, illnesses they seem to they seem to cause? Yeah, you brought up the point that the common coronaviruses, they usually have some sort of seasonal circulation or you see them more in the fall and the winter and when you would when you when everybody feels like they're getting a cold one of them could just be a coronavirus and we don't often know exactly what coronavirus is infecting what person because we don't always test everybody that has a common cold but right. if kids get more sick or someone gets more sick they might get what a PCR test to see what the virus is that's causing them to be ill and sometimes it comes up that it's a coronavirus. There's a couple of different cousin coronaviruses that have different names like NL63 or OC43 or HKU1, but the, the names don't matter as much just, and they actually will tell you by PCR what they are, but it really they're kind of in general, just more mild coronaviruses compared to the first SARS or MERS that are in this current SARS-2 that are much more clinically severe. In addition to causing just kind of more upper respiratory tract infections like the common cold, sometimes they can go on, like you mentioned, to have bronchiolitis or NL63, for example, was associated with croup, so kind of a barking cough in kids. Right. Um, but for the most part, they tend to stay in the upper airway and not go so much into the lower lungs like the other coronaviruses. But any any there's always an exception to the rule so people certainly can die of the more mild coronaviruses but just not to the extent that we're seeing now with the SARS-2. Yeah that makes sense okay a little bit about your research background so your research background Taylor is in the coronavirus SARS-CoV-1 is that correct? Yeah so I actually looked at SARS coronavirus the first one but then also comparing it to NL63, which is another one of those mild coronaviruses. And I was trying to figure out or look at differences and similarities between those two to see if we could figure out why one was more mild and one was more severe, because they actually use the same receptor, that same doorknob to get into cells. They use the same protein, um, NL63 and both of the SARS coronaviruses do. Um, oh, wow. So, okay. Yeah, they all use what's called ACE2. Um, to get into cells, even though they have such very different outcomes in the end. Gotcha. Yeah, definitely seems like even though there's some similarities, there are certain things that are making the SARS viruses a little bit more more severe than the than the others. Can you tell us a little bit more about for those that maybe don't remember that early SARS epidemic from the early 2000s, a little bit more about sort of what went on there and a little bit more about the virus that seems to have caused that specific epidemic. Yeah, so that first SARS epidemic was in the early 2000s. It, in the beginning, it kind of looked like what this one looked like. I, I first started noticing with this SARS-2 back in right around the turn of the year, so like New, right New Year's Eve, I, there was reports of this weird pneumonia in China 
and nobody was really paying too much attention of it. It was just case reports. And then that was similar to kind of what happened in the beginning of SARS, except for it was more kept under wraps. And so the com world community didn't get to know too much about it for a number of months until it was um, spreading even more. And the first SARS, one of the big differences is it, it was much easier to control with con typical infection prevention and control measures. So like everything that we've tried so far, everybody knows, you know, you wash your hands, you cover your cough, but then it's going up to the more um, higher level control measures where they'll test for someone to have the infection and then isolate that person or trace, do what's called contact tracing and look to see who has that person been in contact with and then isolate all of those people. Those methods really work to control the first SARS. So although it started out similarly and there were some rumbles and then it grew into more in Asia and a few cases outside of Asia, including some in Toronto, the different little outbreak areas, or not little, but the outbreak areas were able to be controlled more just with epidemiologic controls. Um, sure. It, and part of that might have to do with the fact that they, people really spread that virus after they were pretty symptomatic. So you could see someone coughing with a fever and just isolate them. We now know for this SARS-2 that you can be feeling fine and still spreading the virus. So it makes those infection control measures of isolating symptomatic patients and isolating people that could be shedding much more difficult. Sure, sure, that, that makes sense. Was that from, I guess from a sort of severity standpoint and more specifically a mortality standpoint, was that initial SARS epidemic from a mortality rate standpoint a little bit more severe than the mortality rate we're seeing with this SARS-CoV-1 outbreak? Yeah, it, it's well, it's hard to compare exactly because the the level of spread has been very different. And also testing wise, we haven't probably tested everybody that has been possibly infected with the SARS-2 coronavirus. So right. assessing exact mortality is difficult because you don't know how many asymptomatic or mild infections are out there that we're not catching. So sure. it, it seems like they both can be severe. Um, but I don't know exactly the comparison. Um, I think they're probably similar in their mortality rates, but it's, it's a moving target right now. Is there any lessons that we learned from the SARS, the initial 2002 epidemic, that we could have applied in the case of this one before it became so severely present in the community? Well, one thing that's funny is that in the scientific community, people have been saying that this is not, somebody I quoted in my dissertation many years ago from a paper in 2010 that said the next coronavirus pandemic is not a question of if, it's a question of when. It, it really is was apparent to scientists that this was a warning shot that first SARS and then MERS also that this sure. is not something that was you know just a bad luck once it's going to keep happening and that's because there are animal reservoirs that, that have coronaviruses in fact some people have said that coronavirus pandemics are kind of coronaviruses have almost a ready-made pandemic because the bat population especially in China has circulating viruses in it that are very similar to these 
to the SARS virus, and that's where they think both of these SARS viruses came from. And they're, okay. they don't require much to jump from a bat host to a human host, and okay. then the next jump being from human to human. Luckily with MERS, when it made the jump from animals to humans, it didn't make that second jump from human to human. So it went from camels to humans, and then it kind of sizzles out. But for SARS, once it gets into humans, it can spread everywhere. And there were some lessons learned in that we knew that it was possible, um, but unfortunately, as a population in the whole world, really, we didn't do too much. Not that we didn't prepare enough, probably, but we did continue some research in animal models. And so we were at a better place now than we were back then in terms of understanding some of the pathology that can result from coronavirus infections and having sure. some clues about vaccines or antiviral agents that might be useful because SARS-1 and SARS-2, they're named the same thing because they're really close cousins. And that's kind of nice. So a lot of the research that was done in SARS-1 is helping us learn about SARS-2. Gotcha, gotcha. So when we talk about this animal to human transmission method, it does seem like it's something that happens frequently or at least not infrequently especially with this uh, bat-to-human transmission. Now we've had the SARS epidemic from the early 2000s that started this way, but also now this current pandemic with the uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus also um, having started this way. Does this fact that it's happened now twice in the last 20 years, does this speak more to any general trends between animal and human interactions that maybe we should learn from and how can we learn from this and understand this a little bit better to maybe prevent future outbreaks like this from occurring? Yeah, I don't, I'm not an expert on so much on that area, but it is sure, very interesting sure. that in the last couple of decades, there have been some emerged. Looking back historically, they can trace back the, the relatively mild coronaviruses to an original animal reservoir. Sometimes bats, sometimes cows, like they, they can say, but these events happened thousands of years ago. So is this just how coronaviruses come about into the population that it makes a zoonotic emergence, it goes through the population, maybe a, a severe infection, but then it just kind of keeps circulating at lower levels. Who knows? Because those original events <laughs> probably happened a lot long ago. Right. Why we've had two recently, I don't know if that's because the animal reservoirs have a circulating population that can make that jump a lot more easily now? Or is it because of some shift in human-animal interactions? Is it because of climate change and or urban spread? I'm not sure. I know a lot of people are asking those questions. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like there there's a lot to look into uh, going forward. So with this specific virus, with SARS-CoV-2, what is the typical clinical presentation we're seeing with people who are infected with this? Well, it can range anywhere from no symptoms to severe respiratory pneumonia and death. So it's quite varied. That is quite the spectrum. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, most people, it, it's hard to say because obviously there needs to be more testing and bigger studies done to see what the what majority would present with. But if you're going to have a clinically symptomatic disease, it seems like fever is usually a component of it. And then sore throat or some sort of upper respiratory with a cough is often <laughs> what we think of. Um, 
You can also have GI things, which means you can have diarrhea or vomiting. And that was also a feature of some of the other coronaviruses, like the SARS coronavirus in the first time, they found that it, it could also induce more diarrhea and in addition to the respiratory symptoms. And the virus can infect both the respiratory tract and the gastrointestinal tract. Really interesting when you think about it in terms of other respiratory viruses, because usually you're more limited to just one area of the body that gets infected. So right. th that's a current area of investigation is what's actually going on in the, in the um, gastrointestinal tract. So you can have those respiratory symptoms, your GI symptoms and your fever. Then the, the typical clinical course I would say is probably most people will get better, but there is a population of people that will progress to have more severe disease and to have especially more pneumonia. And that can actually sometimes happen in the face of decreasing amounts of virus, which is really paradoxical because you'd think that if you have more worse infection, you must have a lot of virus around. Um, but this was seen for the first SARS, and this is one of those lessons that we learned, that actually okay. as levels of the virus seem to go down, patients might get worse. And they noticed a lot of increased inflammation. So your immune system just trying so hard to control the virus that it almost goes out of control. And the I immune see. system actually can start damaging the patient and damaging the lungs and to, can lead to a lot of those immune cells going into the lung where you, you really want your air to go, not cells to be filling. Exactly. And then some of those patients, if not intervened on, um, they can progress then to having death because of the just overwhelming immune response to the virus that at that point might even be long gone. And th that's what we kind of think about in, in the clinics, we're seeing that the first phase can be maybe about a week. And then if anybody's experienced the infection, some people have said then, once you go into that second week, sometimes people get more ill or their fevers aren't going away or their, their cough is getting worse or their oxygen levels are getting lower. And that's when we think the immune system might really be playing a bigger part. We know there are certain groups of people that are considered high risk for having a very serious infection. Um, these groups of people include people like the elderly, those with coexisting conditions such as heart problems or lung problems, those who smoke, and even people with uh, conditions that compromise their immune system. But we know these people aren't necessarily considered only high risk for COVID-19. They're considered high risk in general for any illnesses or any infections. But with this illness, we're seeing that people who are, quote, young and healthy also seem to be uh, pretty severely affected to a lesser degree, of course, but still happening. Um, they're getting severe illnesses and even dying from this illness. Is there any idea as to why this, quote, younger and healthier group of people seems to be uh, getting affected so severely by this? Well, any infection can cause mortality in, in low risk groups. Uh, being in pediatrics, I'm sure you've seen this because, you know, kids that are usually can fight off the flu and do fine, some of them end up in the ICU severely ill and die, even though they don't necessarily have an identified risk factor. And right. we'll, you know, unfortunately have to talk it up to almost bad luck sometimes in those cases. So there's always going to be those low risk patients that you just don't know why they're getting such a severe infection. 
Right. The risk factors that are coming out for coronavirus, uh, SARS and COVID-2, or sorry, for COVID-19, <laughs> seem to be, like you said, some of the more traditional ones. Older age was a big risk factor for having severe infection, sure. having a pre-existing heart condition, lung condition. And then the healthcare setting, it seems like having exposure in the healthcare setting is a risk factor for having more severe infections. So a lot of the young cases that are severe are coming out of the healthcare setting and it's not completely clear what that's related to. Some people have hypothesized it has to do with a more virus initially being exposed to more virus and higher amounts of virus early in the infection that could be leading to the worst disease. And that's one possibility. There are also some factors that need to be confirmed out there, but some people are saying that um, are patients that are male more at risk? Or if you have a higher body mass index, so you're obese or overweight, mm -hmm. are you more at risk? So it might be a combination of some of those factors that aren't as apparent as being a 90-year-old with heart disease. Right. <laughs> but they might also be playing a role in some of these younger patients who get really ill. Right. No, that's very interesting that you bring that up. I was actually planning to ask you about the disproportionate amount of healthcare workers that seem to be um, getting sick from this and more so getting severely ill from it. And it sounds like what you're saying is one of the hypotheses. Again, it sounds like there needs to be more more research done into this, but that the exposure to the higher load of the virus may seem to be playing a playing a role for for these specific individuals in this specific population. It's definitely a possibility that it's just that they're exposed to more of the virus and that healthcare workers get a higher dose of infection, so to say. Right. We also know, you know, healthcare workers on the front lines are stressed. They are probably not taking care of themselves best. Sure. They also probably have some immune system differences that you know, your immune system works best when you're eating great healthy meals and you're getting a lot of sleep and you're not being very stressed, which are the exact opposite of what the healthcare workers are probably facing right now. Exactly. It's that's such an unfortunate scenario right now. Uh, Taylor, I wanted to switch gears here a little bit and talk about an idea that I feel like a lot of people have been talking about. It's been circulating in the news, but also people um, even within the healthcare community seem to be sort of talking about it. And that's the idea that this coronavirus and specifically this COVID-19 is only a winter virus and that once these sort of warmer temperatures come around like here what we're starting to now um, see uh, glimpses of in Chicago once these sort of warmer summertime temperatures start coming around that this virus is going to slowly start fading away and that in the summertime it won't be as much of a problem. What do you have to say about that? I would love to have my summer back. <laughs> I right. want to be able to go to the beach so I certainly hope that's true. But the bottom line is no one knows for sure. This is an sure. unprecedented scenario. The hypotheses that people have, that have been cited for why we think that the virus might decrease during the summer months and looking at it from other coronaviruses is that coronaviruses like most viruses are susceptible to UV radiation, so from the sun. And so they don't last as long on surfaces. One of the ways that you can transmit coronaviruses and why we say wash your hands all the time is that if you touch something that someone who is infected touched, someone infected touches a surface and then you touch it a few minutes later, that virus could be transmitted from that surface. So you didn't necessarily even come into contact with that person. You just happened right. to grab the grocery cart after them. 
So the hope is that the UV light from the sun and the warmer temperatures actually might prevent that virus from lasting so long on that shopping cart handle. And so maybe that will slow down the spread. Sure. Others have pointed out, well, it spread pretty well in Southern Asia, in Singapore, in some of the warmer areas, and that didn't seem to work so well for them. They weren't really protected. Sure. So there's, there's a lot that's not known. Another factor, though, is that people in the summer, they're not congregating indoors and coughing on each other and spreading it directly. So that's another thing in the summer, we're definitely outside more and we might not be in close quarters with people. But I think a lot of the social distancing has already put that one method of spread and decreased it already. Yeah. So I certainly hope that we will have decreased spread in the summer, but only time will tell. Yeah. Yeah, for our listeners, when you guys listen to this, we're not by any means saying that just because there's some evidence that that UV radiation seems to decrease the viability of this virus, that's not a reason to go out on the beach and start sunbathing with your friends. So please don't do that. Yeah, uh, the, the risks do not outweigh the benefits for that. Exactly. <laughs> Skin cancer still exists. Exactly, exactly. Wear your sunblock, people. Is there, as far as we know right now with the current data we're seeing with either this virus or some of the more similar viruses from the past, is there any data or research to suggest that our pregnant patients might be at higher risk or if there's any evidence that there could be any sort of vertical transmission of this infection right now? There's not any evidence of that as much as it's been looked into. Um, at least no evidence that the pregnant people are more severely infected or have worse outcomes necessarily. And there haven't, hasn't been any data that's really shown transmission from a mom to a newborn baby happening in utero or when, the, when they're still inside the mom. Um, sure. But there have been very young infants that have tested positive and whether that came just from being exposed right after birth, it's not clear. Um, and then I think people have been worried that what if this is something like Zika, we're nine months down the road, we see the exactly. impact of the virus and we just don't know yet. It, it, we didn't see it with other coronaviruses. We haven't seen that necessarily that signal, um, sure. but there are ongoing research efforts right now to look into that question. Got it, got it. So more to come on that, hopefully. Yeah, and hopefully, the reason that we're not seeing any reports is because it's not happening. Sure, um, sure, sure. So right now, that that's the strongest guess, but it's still being looked into. Got it, got it. That makes sense. Thank you. So now that we've talked kind of a lot about this virus, people it's affecting, what sorts of things we're seeing with the virus in terms of a clinical picture. I know right now we talked a little bit about sort of how there's unfortunately no miracle drug right now or miracle therapies um, available. What is there anything right now in terms of medications or other sorts of therapies that is promising? Or could you maybe just take us through some of the therapies and some of the drugs that are being researched and looked into right now? Yeah, so some of the re some of the drugs that are being used right now are drugs that are commonly used for other indications. So they're drugs that have already been made and they're available right now from pharmacies, which is one thing that we need if we're going to combat something very quickly. You can't come up with a drug on its own 
and right. bringing a drug to market, figuring out a drug that works against a specific disease or a specific virus would take years of looking at the bench and then bringing it into clinical trials and everything. So it's, it's nice to be able to use drugs that already exist. But with that, we know that these drugs weren't designed to fight this virus specifically. Right. So even though they might work in a test tube, so to say, or in the lab, working in humans is a whole different ballgame. So I know that there have been some reports of azithromycin, hydroxychloroquine. Sure. Um, there have been reports of different HIV medications like lopinavir, ritonavir, and um, even using, I saw some report in the media the other day about trying to use an antiparasitic drug, ivermectin, which was tried in one lab experiment and seemed to work. And so there's varying levels of support for these treatments, but sure. none of them have really seemed to work all that well. But of course, studies need to be done and these need to be used in the context of clinical trials so that we can actually compare this drug to another drug head to head or this drug to nothing head to head to see if it's actually making an impact. The trials that have come out so far, the reports that have come out so far, have been very small and haven't actually answered the question of do these work? And the signals seem to actually indicate that they might not make that big of a difference, unfortunately. But some of the treatments though that might have some promise are ones that would impact the immune system itself. Because I mentioned that most people will get better from the infection just by clearing the infection with their immune system, but some people have that overactive immune system that can cause disease. So the sure. thought being, if you can find that Goldilocks moment, that moment where the virus has the immune system has reacted enough to fight off the virus, but before it's reacted too much and it's causing damage, if you can get in that moment and put in some sort of drug to kind of halt the immune system from causing damage, that might actually be a really promising cure or treatment for the virus. Now, the thing that you're going to have to figure out is what patients are going into that response where their immune system is going out of control. So you have to identify that patient and then at what point do you give that drug? How much do you give? Do you give it once? Do you give it multiple times? And those are questions that are being investigated also in other clinical trials. Sure. Um, and I think those have a lot of promise to them because antivirals, you have to remember, you want to take those as soon as you're infected, but you might be infected and not feel that bad for a few days. So it's hard to catch people when they're right first infected. That's right. the problem that we have with the influenza drugs. Like everybody wants to use Tamiflu, but it doesn't work that well after you've already had the infection for a few days and you're feeling crummy. It only really works if you get it right off the bat. Sure. So it'd be nice if we could figure out these patients that are getting really sick and that's usually a week into it or a little bit longer, and then intervene at that time by affecting their immune system, not necessarily affecting the virus itself. Very, very interesting. This this virus seems to have a lot of tricks up its sleeves, definitely. All viruses do. <laughs> yes, yes. I love what our, what our infectious disease colleagues always say. It's just a microbes world. We just live in it. I, this it seems like there's no better time to illustrate that than right now. By Saturday, he was in ICU on life support on the machine, on a ventilator. Doctors now trying a Hail Mary pass to save his life, a treatment called convalescent plasma, but not just any plasma. It has to come from a patient who survived coronavirus, has been better for 14 days, now tests negative with a compatible blood type. One other therapy uh, that I've been reading about a little bit more recently, Taylor, and maybe you can speak a little bit more about it as well, is 
I've been hearing about condolescent plasma as a possible treatment for some of these more severe cases of COVID-19. Do you happen to uh, be familiar with that therapy? And if, uh, if so, maybe tell us a little bit more about it. Yeah, so the idea there is if someone gets infected and then they get rid of the infection on their own, presumably their immune system did something to get rid of that infection. And a lot of times what it does is it will make antibodies. And so if you have an infection and you get better, you're often protected from having that same infection again because of your antibody response. So the idea is that you would take the antibodies from someone that's gotten better from a SARS-2 infection from COVID-19 you take those antibodies out of the patients, you clean them up, and then you give them to someone when they're acutely ill, so when they're still trying to fight that infection themselves. This has been worked, it's called passive immunity, and it's been worked for many, many years. It's one of the first things that was discovered to work against different um, pathogens over 100 years ago. Right now, there's not a ton of people out there that we can say, for sure, you got better from this infection and we collected your antibodies or we know how to collect your antibodies, we know the right doses, all of those questions you have with antivirals. But it's something that we are actively trying to figure out. And with that comes the question of how do we test to see if somebody has had the virus already and recovered from it. And a lot of times you'll test for those antibodies, but in order to test for those antibodies, you need to have a good clinical assay or good test out there and then it almost becomes a catch-22. You need enough people to have recovered to develop those tests to detect right. people that have recovered. And that's kind of the point we're at right now, where a lot of companies are trying to develop these antibody tests to test if people have antibodies, but we need to figure out, are those tests really reliable uh, um, in the population? And then once we identify those patients, can we get antibodies from them and transfuse them into other patients? And there's always side effects, again, with any of course. thing. I won't get into the details. Um, <laughs> but they're putting someone else's antibodies into another person you always have different risks um, that go along with that, that they're gonna be looking closely at especially for viral infections sometimes it can make things worse yeah yeah no, not something to be taken lightly by any means right don't go bleeding your neighbor next door who seems to got better. <laughs> I was I was just about to go do that <laughs> I wanted to just briefly touch on the on the topic of immunity now that we've sort of been talking about that for the last few minutes. Can you just for our listeners who may not be um, familiar with this concept, can you explain the concept of herd immunity to our listeners and um, what exactly that means? Yeah, so that's that's why we think vaccination is so important for the whole population is this concept of herd immunity. And the general idea is that enough people in a community have either seen a virus or seen a pathogen or seen part of that virus or pathogen through a vaccine that their immune system has responded by usually making these antibodies so that the next time they encounter that virus, they won't get sick or that their immune system can take care of it. Sure. And with that, you would have the idea that say, all of your friends around you have seen this virus, but you haven't. But they kind of make this protective shield around you because they're not gonna transmit that virus because they're not gonna get infected with it again. So even though you might not have seen that virus before, the virus isn't even gonna make it to you because your friends that are forming this protective circle around you aren't gonna let it, aren't gonna keep transmitting it. And for each virus and each pathogen, it's a different amount of friends that you need around you 
to have protection. So for the measles, we know you have to have a lot of people around you have immunity for that virus to get stamped out. And for if one person walked into the room with the virus, you'd have to have over 90% of the people in that room to have that immunity to it for that virus not to spread through the population. Wow. So we don't know for coronaviruses how many people are it's going to take to have that herd immunity. But we do know that right now no one has it. So this virus came into a population where nobody was protected from it. We didn't have an immune response in the community. And that's right. why it's able to just spread like wildfire because nobody is naturally immune to it. Now, a lot of people are becoming immune to it by getting infected. At what point enough people have been infected and are immune that the virus slows the spreading down, we'll have to see. Sure. Is there any even idea or any sort of theories about somebody who was infected with this virus, what the duration of their immunity could be right now? Or is that something that we still are working on figuring out? Actually, there are some clues from the first SARS SARS infections that came up 20 years ago. So they looked at the duration of the antibody response in patients after they had been infected. And what it looked like is it definitely seemed to stick around for a year. But once you started going beyond that, more to like two years or longer, the amount of antibodies in patient systems decreased. Now, the patients weren't going to be re-exposed to the virus. So who knows what level of antibodies you need to be protected and at what point you would go below that level that you need to be protected. But it does seem like antibodies went away over time. Got it. So we're not sort of at a point yet where someone who has confirmed that they've had the infection, tested positive for it, gone through the self-isolation, and have then confirmed that that they are now negative for the virus and that they've cleared it. They still can't necessarily, it's too soon to say whether or not they can just breathe a sigh of relief that now they don't have to worry about getting sick going forward. Probably not in the immediate time period. You know, we're talking years here, but you don't know for the rest of your life, you're probably not going to be protected. Although if this turns into something that circulates in the population every year, you get continually re-exposed to it, which did not happen with the first SARS. We got rid of that and we, you know, kind of locked it away in labs. Um, It wasn't in the population. So with this one, if it does start to circulate and you start to see it again and again every couple of years, maybe your immunity will get boosted enough naturally that you will be protected for a longer period of time. Could or they'll this, come up with a vaccine. Right, right, right. Could this, could you see, and of course it may be too early to tell, but could you see this develop into a situation where like we get the seasonal influenza vaccine annually, it may be something similar to that where we may in a few years live in a society where a annual coronavirus vaccine may be something that we have to put as part of our routine health maintenance visits. It's possible. It's also possible that um, this virus could die down and we don't necessarily see high mortality rates anymore from it. And then perhaps it's something that we have more like smallpox, where if we have an emerging coronavirus, then we could go up and and vaccinate the population at that point. Um, And we have stockpiles of the vaccine at the ready. I don't know what what it's going to, the vaccination strategy is going to be. Certainly right now it would be a different scenario than if we got this virus under control right now it would just be vaccinate people to get it to control the spread 
Sure, that makes sense. And that brings me to my last point of sort of just vaccine development. Of course, can you talk us through just in general, what does vaccine develop, what does the vaccine development process look like? So it's funny, the vaccine development process is something that can take many, many, many years, as it should. Um, Although some people wouldn't like, don't want to believe it, we actually do study vaccines and make sure they're safe before we use them in the populations. Um, And so there's no way around that process. We, the vaccines have to go through multiple levels of clinical trials, starting out with small groups of people that are healthy and to see if the vaccine has any harms to those people. And then moving up to looking at patients that are exposed to the virus and seeing does the vaccine actually work. And in those clinical trials, you're talking about thousands, millions of patients that need to be enrolled. And so those trials take many, many months to years. Before those trials can start, you have to find a vaccine that might work and you have to make that vaccine. Luckily, there were some early wins, so to say, in the lab where we were able to take, um, in the general we, not me, they were able to take knowledge from the first SARS virus and kind of plug and chug vaccines in the lab and actually get new vaccine platforms, get the sequence from this virus. So once they figured out what type of virus it was and what the DNA sequence was, they were able to plug it in and start making these vaccine candidates. And actually what used to take years in the lab to figure out vaccine candidates, they were able to do in the matter of months, which is amazing. And they were able to start some of those early clinical trials already, but they still, the clinical trials will take months to years. So it's going to take a while. And after that, you have to remember, once you've proven a vaccine is safe and that it works, then you have to make it in a huge scale. So then we have to figure out how you can make enough doses to get them out to everyone and distribute it across the world. So it's not something that's easy or quick. And that's even assuming that we find ones that work. Some some of the vaccines that seem to work really well for the first SARS, at least in animal models, it worked better in the younger populations and not necessarily in the older populations where you need it the most. So it's gonna, it might, the first one we try might not be the one that ends up working. Right, right. Awesome. Well, is there any final messages you have for our audience or anything else you'd like them to know that maybe we didn't talk about today? Uh, Not really. I think we've covered a lot of things. Um, I know people are asking, what do we do at home? And really just stay home. (laughs) Wash your hands. Try not to go out into the community as much as possible. Um, We really rely on everyone else to keep each other safe. This is it doesn't seem like we're doing much, but as one of my mentors say, uh, what is Ben Katz's saying? Major killer. Don't just stand there, do nothing. Because <laughs> that's actually really important. Yeah, that sounds like the... By doing nothing. <laughs> that sounds like the perfect life motto here right now. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much, Taylor, for coming on and talking with us. I think we have a lot of good information that hopefully our listeners can learn from. And... As we talked about during this interview, we talked a lot about how a lot of information has yet to come forward and there's still so much to learn. So hopefully in the future, we can have you come on again and uh, enlighten us a little bit more. Yeah, certainly. Awesome. Thanks, Taylor. Okay, thanks.
Medicine Remix fam, we hope you enjoyed today's episode of Inside the Hospital. And if you've gotten something out of this episode, we would appreciate you recommending our show to your friends and family in the form of DMs, social media posts, or even as a sketchy chain letter on WhatsApp. Big ups to all the healthcare providers out there right now risking their lives to fight for humanity. And big ups to all of you at home for firing one of the biggest weapons we have against this thing right now, social distancing. If you have questions about anything COVID-19 related or otherwise, leave us a voice message on Anchor or hit us up directly on our social media channels, which we'll link in our show notes. Thanks again to our guest for today's episode, Dr. Heald Sargent, and to our guest interviewer, Duanil, for holding us down. Although this is his first appearance on the show, I can assure you it won't be his last. Thanks again for listening. Stay safe, stay home, and keep it locked. I'm KT, and you're in the mix with Medicine Remixed. Thank you.